Alright, why don't we go ahead and get started. I know there's some other people I think that's going to be coming, but we'll go ahead and get started because I do want to not take this till midnight tonight. Alright, and you guys I know have questions. Uh, here's what I'd like to do. First, we're going to open up with prayer. And we're going to ask the Lord to help tonight. And then I'd like to give you about a 15-minute deal on the Da Vinci Code. And I think some of what I'm going to share with you will probably answer some of your questions. And then some of the information I give you will probably stir up some questions. And then I still may have not covered your questions or what you would like to talk about. And so that's what we'll spend a few minutes on also tonight. Um, Fascinating. I'm going to say another couple things and then I'll pray. First of all, I think that the Da Vinci Code book and the soon-to-come-out movie is giving us as Christians a great opportunity to share our faith. Secondly, I think this is a great opportunity to strengthen the faith of believers. There are a lot of believers who are having their faith shaken by this book and by this upcoming movie. Uh, Some people that are wondering if what they have been taught and what they believe is really true. And that's always important for us to strengthen our faith in what we believe and to know what we believe and why we believe it. And then I think the third thing is, for those who are searching for Christ, going after God, we cannot allow something like the Da Vinci Code to detour them from continuing their search after God. And uh, just to show you the magnitude of how this is impacting our society, just the other day, there was a fellow who said... After reading the Da Vinci Code, I will never set foot in church again. That's the kind of impact that this book is making on people, all right? And so I think that's why, even as a church, we wanted to take some time to talk about it, because it's going to be significant, and it's already significant, and the movie's not even out yet. The movie comes out the 19th of May. All right, let's open up with prayer, and then I'm going to get right into it tonight. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ the one that we are here ultimately to worship tonight and to talk about. And Father, we thank you for your word that is sufficient, that is complete, that is our final authority. And we pray, Lord, tonight that the the things that we share and the scriptures that we look at, Father, would really open up our minds to the truth. Lord, truth is not opinionated. It's, It's either the truth or it isn't. And so, Father, we pray tonight that as we look at the truth, that our hearts would be gripped, that our hearts would be strengthened, that our lives would be strengthened, Lord, in you and in your truth. For, Father, your Son himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Father, we pray tonight that uh, we would just be reintroduced and reminded of your truth, both embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and also in the Bible. And, Lord, just encourage us, we pray tonight. And give us, Lord... Uh, some things that we can maybe use to share our faith with, even with those who are talking about this and and maybe questioning some things. Help us to do it, though, Lord, in a loving, compassionate, gracious way, uh, the way of Christ. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I was also going to write some notes on the board, and because there was something going on in here before we got in here, I just didn't want to take 20 minutes to do it, which would have taken it, so I apologize. There's going to be a lot that you're probably going to want to have written down and not going to have the time to, but fortunately, Ron 
is taping this, and it will be on the website, so you can get it on there. And I appreciate Ron doing that for us. First of all, let me start out by saying this. The Da Vinci Code raises questions such as, was Jesus' deity the result of a vote by the early church fathers? Uh, Can the word of God be trusted, or was it tampered with by powerful men who had a secret to keep? The Da Vinci Code book by Dan Brown has sold over 30 million copies. It has been translated into 40 languages. Languages. The Da Vinci Code attacks the integrity and credibility of the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that's causing a problem is there are many who are saying, well, is it fact or is it fiction? I've heard that the book you know, claims to be fiction. I think there's a lot of confusion there. Uh, inside the book, if you have read the book, you'll notice on the very inside of the book it says this, FACT, in big, bold letters, F-A-C-T, all descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in the novel are accurate. That's what the book claims. And despite other things that you've heard Dan Brown say, Dan Brown, I really believe, believes what he wrote is true. In fact, on the Today Show, many months ago, when he was questioned by Matt Lauer about the reality and credibility of this book, he basically said, everything about it is accurate as far as I am concerned. And that causes problems. Why? Because here are some claims made by the book. First of all, Jesus was merely human. He is not God. He's not the Son of God. That Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene that Mary Magdalene is divine. She is actually God, not Jesus Christ. Their descendants moved to France and became the Moravian line of kings in France. In other words, the French kings could say, hey, we're better than all the other kings in Europe because we're descendants of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. Uh, and the last thing, that the major thing, well, no, two other things, that Leonardo da Vinci understood all this. All right? And that's how the Da Vinci then comes into play. And the bones of Mary Magdalene are buried under the pyramid in the Louvre Museum in France. All right? Now, there's a lot of other claims, okay? Those are the major ones. All right? Jesus was merely human. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is divine. Their descendants moved to France. Leonardo da Vinci understood this, and the bones of Mary Magdalene are under the Louvre Museum in France. Now, if you just have a moment, would you please, if you have your Bibles with you tonight, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Since I have started out and shared those thoughts with you, I, at this point, wanted to bring some scripture in on this. Because this is something that scripture talks about. And really, when you get right down to it, and I'll talk more about this later, what Dan Brown is espousing in the Da Vinci Code is nothing new. It sounds new. It's being marketed as new. But it is old attacks upon Christ and Christianity that's just packaged in a new way. It's not new. But I want you to notice a couple verses. First of all, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Notice what Paul told Timothy. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will desert the faith, occupy themselves with deceiving spirits and demonic teachings. 
Then if you go over to 2 Timothy, just the book right next door, to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3 in the first part of verse 4, notice again what Paul tells Timothy. For there will be a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. Instead, following their own desires, they will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an insatiable curiosity to hear new things. And they will turn away from hearing the truth. And then if you would go over to 2 Peter, to 2 Peter chapter 3, no, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Look at the first three verses of 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. These false teachers will infiltrate your midst with destructive heresies, even to the point of denying the master who bought them. As a result, they will bring swift destruction on themselves, and many, notice, many will follow their debauched lifestyles. Because of these false teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. And in their greed, they will, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not sitting idly by. Their destruction is not asleep. Now, in these verses, you just have the truth that the false is going to overtake the truth. And more and more. And that people are going to abandon the truth and they're going to embrace all of these false teachings and, and false things that are going to be uh, promoted out there in the world in which we live. Now, the problem with that is this. When you and I throw out truth, and I'm not saying us personally, but when we as a society or a culture throw out truth, Error is going to rush into the vacuum. And that's what takes place with things like the Da Vinci Code. If somebody's going to reject the truth and say, I'm not going to buy the truth, then there's going to be a vacuum created, and error is going to run in and rush into that vacuum. And that's what we have here today. Uh, some would say, well, what does Brown, the author of the book, base all of these claims on? He primarily bases them on what is called the Gnostic Gospels. All right? The Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels were written hundreds of years after the Gospels that we have in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most of them were written, say, between 200 and 300 A.D. And... Many of them, like the ones that Brown takes his stuff from, were actually written to undermine the credibility of Christianity and of Christ. Because, you know, Christianity had been around now for 150, 200 years, and they didn't like Christ, they didn't like Christianity, so much of what is written here is actually an attack upon Christianity. These Gospels were never accepted by the early church. They were always rejected. They were what was called in the early church, and what they are still called today, the pseudepigrapha, meaning the false writings. They were, they were deemed false, in other words, from the very beginning. And certainly in contrast to the real Gospels, there's just 
no question that they should have never even been part of the Bible. In fact, again, they attack Christ and they attack the Bible. They attack our faith. For instance, just some of the things that they would say, uh, one of the, the Gnostic Gospels says that uh, when Jesus Christ, that they buy the fact that Jesus Christ had miracle-working powers, but that he wasn't God, he was given these powers by God, and that when he was a child, he couldn't handle these miracle-working powers. So just for the fun of it, when he was a young teenager, he would kill people, and then with his powers, he would raise them from the dead just for the fun of it, just to watch that, you know. And it wasn't until he got older and got into his late 20s and early 30s where he, he started to be able to control this power and use it just for good rather than just for kicks, if you will. Now, the word Gnostic simply means secret knowledge or knowledge that, you know, is gained by only a few and they need to pass it on and in fact, that's one of the things about the Gnostics is they really, when you get right down to it, are basically saying that we are the only ones that really know the truth and the rest of you are stupid and you need us to be able to tell you what the truth is. Okay? Unlike what the Bible claims, the Bible claims that the message of God, he wants to reach out to everybody. And it doesn't matter whether you're 80 or 8, you can understand that Jesus loves you and died for you and rose from the dead. And it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, whether you're white or black, whatever your skin color is, whatever your background is, that God reaches out to everybody and wants everybody. Where, see, the Gnostics are saying, no, no, there's this secret knowledge that has been hidden. And if you've read the Da Vinci Code, or if you go to the movie, or anything about the Gnostics, you'll understand that you know, there's this secret knowledge that's been hidden for centuries, and it's taking really, you know, people to just find this out by continuing to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. So that's primarily where he gets his information from. And just, again, for a sidelight, the Gospel of Judas, okay? The Gospel of Judas is one of those Gnostic Gospels that people are making a big deal about today. Well, first of all, the Gospel of Judas was written about 250 A.D. So obviously, guess who didn't write it? Judas didn't write it, okay? Uh, other Gospels in the Gnostic Gospels would be the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of the Egyptians. Uh, you know, there's several of them out there. Again, I want you just to know this. They were written several hundred years after the original Gospels, they were written to primarily attack the credibility of Christianity. They were never accepted by the early church as any kind of accurate information that should be deemed. In fact, they were called the false writings. Okay, So that's primarily where Dan Brown gets most of his information. All right. Now, let me just go down through here. and just I just want to contrast this because I think it will be helpful to you. One of the claims that Dan Brown makes is that the Bible was collated and formed by the Roman Emperor Constantine. Well, Constantine, Constantine didn't come on the scene of history until the 4th century. So this is one of the major, again, and what you will find is if you truly are a student of the Bible and a student even of history, you will find all these inaccuracies in Dan Brown's book. All right? For instance, he doesn't even get the, he doesn't even get the date of finding the Dead Sea Scrolls right. And that's something that happened in the 1950s. He, he doesn't even get that right. So to me, if you can't rely on somebody to give you an accurate date for something, how can you rely on him for any other information he gives in the book? All right. So 
So one of the things is he's saying that basically the Bible was put together in the 4th century by the Roman Emperor Constantine for his own political purposes. Well, again, if you know anything about how the Bible was put together and about history, you and I know that the Bible that we have in our hands right now was pretty much put together by the end of the first century. The 27 books that we have in our hand today was pretty much accepted by the church by the end of the first, way earlier than the first century. And some say, okay, Jeff, how do we knew, how did we know what books you know, God wanted in the Word. Well, first of all, we know that the Bible teaches that God inspired His Word. We also know that, that God oversaw the collection of what... I mean, God's not going to say, here's what I want you to know, and then somehow through that process, fumble the ball when it comes to getting and gathering the books that He wants us to have and wants us to know. He's not going to do that, okay? So God also not only oversaw the writing of the Bible, he oversaw how the Bible was put together and how it was collected. And it wasn't that men or women came along and said, yeah, I think that book's the Bible and I think that book belongs to it. No, no. God had inspired these books and it was just up to the people, the church, to recognize the authority and the inspiration that came from those books. And there were several criteria that they would use. Like in the Old Testament... If you were a prophet of God, you know, that was one thing. Or like in the New Testament, if you were an apostle of Christ, uh, you know, that, that carried a lot of weight, okay? So in the New Testament, if you, Peter, Paul, uh, people like that, my goodness, you know, Matthew, okay, you, it carried a lot of weight. And so if you were an apostle, also, another check and balance was, that if a book came along and claimed to be authoritative and inspired, but it contradicted a book that was already part of what the church had accepted, obviously that would go out the door. So if a book came along and somebody says, this is inspired, and then they come along and say, oh, but wait a minute, Peter over here already taught us this, and that contradicts that, then it was thrown out. So they had checks and balances of what books were going to be in the Bible and what books weren't. But the point I want to make is this. The Bible was basically put together and done by the end of the first century. And here's another cool thing. That means it was within like 70 years of when Christ was here on earth. My friends, that's very early evidence. Most things that we know of history and ancient history, like with the Greeks and the Romans and all of that, a lot of times they were written several hundred years, like the Gnostic Gospels, after the actual events. Now we're getting within 70 years, basically a generation. So in other words, these people would have known people who actually were eyewitnesses of Jesus and his resurrection and all that. That's what makes our faith so credible. That's what makes the Bible so credible, is how close we can get back to the actual time. It would be like the same thing if, if somebody today was writing a history of Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president, who existed almost 150 years ago. And they're writing about the life of Abraham Lincoln from 150 years away compared to somebody who wrote about Abraham Lincoln who was on his staff, who was in the White House, who worked with him. Now, just a question. Who would you believe more about what Abraham Lincoln was really like? Somebody who wrote 150 years after Abraham Lincoln or somebody that was actually there with Abraham Lincoln? I don't know about you, but for history's sake, I'm going to believe somebody as close back to as I can get. And the great thing about our faith 
is that one of the great things about the Bible is that all of the manuscripts and all of the evidence that we have can take us back almost within a generation, which as far as history goes is phenomenal. Again, most of the other writings of you know, Rome and, and Greece and all those ancient societies, they're lucky if they can come within a couple hundred years, and yet we accept that. Your children, I went to school, I learned all about Julius Caesar. Do you know we have nothing this close to Julius Caesar at all? Yet we believe it all, okay? We buy it all, and yet it's not as close as this. And the other thing we have going for us is that unlike most ancient documents, the biggest uh, amount of ancient documents that exist to corroborate another ancient document is a guy by the name of Hermes. And he had, they, we found so far 600 manuscripts that corroborate what he wrote. That's the most. Do you realize how many the New Testament has, we have in the New Testament? We have 22,000 manuscripts that we can compare and that we can see that what has, has been written is accurate. In fact, it's so accurate that textual scholars will tell you that we can get within 99 and nine-tenths percent accuracy just by comparing all 22,000 manuscripts and realize we got it right. And the only discrepancy, the only one-tenth discrepancy would be something like this, where somewhere in a verse it would say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and in another manuscript it would say, Christ Jesus is Lord. Same point, just Word order being switched once, okay, that would account for that one-tenth. I mean, folks, what we hold in our hands today is amazingly accurate. It is more accurate than un any other ancient document. It has been attacked ever since it was written. It still stands. It still stands because it doesn't matter what Dan Brown or anybody in history says. There is so much evidence for the Bible that we hold in our hands is the truth. It goes back to the very eyewitnesses, all right? It's just incredible. So that's the first thing, all right? The Bible was collated and formed by the Roman Emperor Constantine. The fact is that the recognition and acceptance of which books were inspired happened long before Constantine, all right? Now, second... The second thing Brown claims is that the deity of Jesus was the result of a close vote at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea really did happen. It happened in 325 A.D. The problem is this council was not called together, if you know history, to decide whether Jesus Christ was God or not. All right? The deity of Jesus was not the result of a close vote at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was called together to review the claims of a heretic by the name of Arius, who denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And that was just one of the things that this council was talking about. And Brown claims that the deity of Jesus Christ was a close vote at the Council of Nicaea. Do you know what the vote actually was at the Council of Nicaea? 300 to 2. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't consider that to be a close vote. And the two people that voted against the deity of Christ were friends of Arius, the guy, the heretic, who was bringing up this stuff. All right? So again, this is a claim that Brown makes in the book. That the deity of Jesus Christ was not something that was, you know, an evidence before the Council of Nicaea, but now all of a sudden, we come to 325 A.D., these guys want to make Jesus Christ God, 
And so it's a very close vote, and they vote on him as God. No way. In fact, there's evidence after evidence after evidence that takes us all the way back to the time of Christ, that people who were there walking with Christ believed he was God. In fact, just six months ago, which is sort of cool that this happened when all this was going around, a recent archaeological dig uncovered the earliest church ever discovered yet, all right, by an archaeological dig in the Holy Land. In fact, it's in Megiddo, which is sort of interesting. And it has this inscription on it, and this church dates all the way back to about 70 A.D., again, about 30 to 40 years after Jesus. And here was the inscription on the church as people would walk in. Let me find it here in my notes. I've lost it. (coughs) To our God, Jesus Christ. You see, they believed that Jesus Christ was God way back in 70 A.D., and now Brown is claiming, no, people didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God. They didn't, they didn't get that filling their minds until 325 at the Council of Nicaea. Wrong. The fact is, people believed that Jesus Christ was God when he was here. In fact, Peter even exclaims, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said upon that confession, you know, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The early church... If you read the church fathers, if you read people like Irenaeus and Augustine and Polycarp and Justin Martyr and people like this, who were alive in 100 and 200, again, way before the Council of Nicaea, you read them, they all believed in the deity of Christ. They all believed that Jesus Christ was God. So again, another false claim by the Da Vinci Code. Another thing, the marriage of Jesus to Mary Magdalene is part of the historical record. That's what Brown claims in the book. Well, the fact is this. This is based on one statement in the Gospel of Philip, which is one of the Gnostic Gospels. And here's what the Gospel of Philip says. It says this, that Jesus kissed Mary Magdalene. And that's all it says. It doesn't even say where he kissed her. Now, first of all, maybe he didn't even kiss her. But my point is this, that Dan Brown and others have taken that statement out of the, one of the Gnostic Gospels, and that's the only evidence that Jesus Christ kissed Mary Magdalene. doesn't tell us whether he kissed her on the hand, on the forehead, but obviously if they were married, as far as they're concerned, he kissed her on the lips. Had to kiss her on the lips. They were married, you know. How they can jump from the fact that this one Gnostic Gospel has a fragment in it that says Jesus Christ kissed Mary Magdalene, and all of a sudden they're married and have kids is beyond me. Because if you read the Gospel of Philip, you will find that the Gospel of Philip never states that Jesus and Mary were married. They never refer to them as having children or their descendants moving to France. None of this is found in the Gospel of Philip. He and others base this fact of Jesus and Mary being married on one statement in the Gospel of Philip that Jesus kissed Mary. I don't know about you, but I don't think I would base a whole belief on that one statement. But you will not find any historical evidence anywhere else in any extra-biblical literature and any other history. You won't find anything in the Bible or anywhere about Jesus and Mary having a relationship. And you even go to some very reliable sources that weren't Christians who wrote about Jesus' life. 
like Tacitus, the Roman historian, Pliny, the Roman historian, Josephus, the Jewish historian, who wrote about Jesus, who wrote things like, these people who follow him believe he's God. And none of them ever said Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. And they were his contemporaries. They were living when he was living, or soon after. And they wrote a history of Jesus and the early church. None of them ever mentioned Mary, Magdalene, and Jesus being married. So again, you have no historical basis. In fact, I have talked to some history professors, not Christians, who've told me that Dan Brown's research in the Da Vinci Code is probably the poorest scholarship they have ever seen in a book. Uh, Unbelievable poor scholarship. And these are people that are not trying to defend Jesus Christ or the church because they don't even believe in Jesus Christ. They're saying, he's, he's just terrible. He's just terrible in what he's doing. But my friends, the sad thing is people are buying into this. They're believing this stuff without any evidence. It's so amazing to me that we can be so skeptical about what the Bible says, and that's okay, because we, we should you know, want to get to the truth, but so gullible about what somebody else says about the Bible or about Jesus, and that's what we face today. I want to get through this because I know you're going to have some questions, so let me just... The other thing that Brown claims is that there were secret societies. This is a big thing, see? Secret societies knew that Jesus was not God, and that they've hidden this truth and would kill anyone who would expose them. You know? And that's one of the, If you go to the movie, you read the book, you'll find it. These secrets that really knew that Jesus wasn't God, but they were hiding the truth. And that this one group called the Priory of Sion... I'm running out of room. I'll go over here. The Priory of Sion, you will read about it in the book, all right, was actually started in 1099 A.D., and that one of the ways we get Leonardo da Vinci in here is that Leonardo was part of this society. Again, this is what Brown claims in the book. And that the Priory of Sion, as well as other secret agencies, have tried to keep the real truth away from us stupid people for years because, you know, we, we just couldn't handle the real truth. Well, the fact is this. The Priory of Sion is an esoteric order that was legally established in France in 1956 by a guy by the name of Pierre Plantard who claimed to be a descendant of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene and rightful heir to the French throne. He was actually a nutcase. In fact, the French government took him to trial and at his trial in France in 1958, he admitted on trial that everything that he had come up with was a total fabrication and it wasn't real. But I just want to share with you, Dan Brown says that this organization started in 1099, Leonardo and other famous people were part of this and they've hidden the truth from us and all of this. No, my friends, you can go and you can find in France where this order, you can see the piece of paper on your website, this order was started in 1956 by this Pierre Plantard. And the other place that Dan Brown gets most of his information from, other than the Gnostic Gospels to write his book, is from the writings of this guy, Pierre Plantard. The guy who admitted in a court of law that everything that he had talked about, about being a descendant of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene and all of that, to get on the French throne was just a bunch of muck. All right? So those are the two sources for Dan Brown. If somebody asks you, where did Dan Brown come up with this? You can tell them, 
the Gnostic Gospels and what that's all about, and this Pierre Plantard and his writings back in the middle 50s in France. The other thing that Brown claims in his book is that da Vinci, okay, places secret codes in his painting of the Last Supper that supports his claims. And if you have ever seen a picture of the Last Supper, you see John, supposedly, the, the apostle there, sitting by Jesus in the picture of the Last Supper. And if you look at it, John looks effeminate. He looks like a woman, okay? So people have said, yeah, Leonardo was trying to tell us that that really wasn't John anyway, that that, that was Mary Magdalene who was in that picture, not John the Apostle. Uh, the problem with that is, there's many problems with that. One of them is that Leonardo actually, in writing about his painting of the Last Supper, actually told us that that was John. He, he doesn't say that that was Mary. And they would say, well, he was trying to hide the truth. Well, if you study Renaissance paintings, you will find that all Renaissance painters painted John very effeminately. He was the youngest of the disciples. He was probably in his late teens, early 20s when he started to follow Christ, maybe even a little bit younger. And they paint him you know, with very long flowing hair and stuff. In fact, this whole effeminate way to picture the Apostle John isn't just Leonardo's idea. If you study Renaissance history, art history, you will find that every Renaissance painter always painted John that way. In fact, on the Isle of Patmos, when John would have been like in his 80s, writing the book of Revelation, there's a Renaissance painter that's got this 80-year-old guy with this pink dress on. Okay? He's wearing a pink dress. But that's the way the Renaissance painters painted those guys back then. I'm glad I didn't live back then. Alright? And, and, and Dan Brown also said, if you look at the painting of the Last Supper real close, you'll see that Peter is given... John, but really Mary, a dirty look. Because Peter doesn't like Mary because, you know, he wants to be sort of Jesus' favorite and Mary's sort of cutting in on his territory and so Peter's giving him a dirty... I mean, these are the claims that Brown makes that as far as Leonardo goes, these were the secret codes and things that Leonardo put into his painting of the Last Supper. Just a quick note also. You can't take the painting of Leonardo da Vinci of the Last Supper as accurate at all. It was totally inaccurate. First of all, according to the Bible in those days, and even history, they would have not been sitting all in a line in a table. They would have been reclining on the floor on a triclinian table, like a table that would have been like in a, uh, a, a pool thing. What do you call it? Uh, the rack the balls? You know what Triangle. I'm talking about. Triangle. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. My brain is fried. A triangle, yeah. They would have been reclining at a table like that. So, I mean, he you know, he painted it through his eyes of somebody in the Middle Ages, not the way it actually happened. A lot of different things there. All right, I'm just going to go on. Uh, so the fact is, Brown has no historical or artistic basis for this interpretation of Leonardo da Vinci and sucking Leonardo into this whole argument anyway. The other claim that Brown makes is that Mary Magdalene is the Holy Grail, that she is the cup of Christ. The fact is that this Holy Grail is a medieval legend associated with King Arthur dating from 1170 A.D. If any of you ever saw the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade about the Holy... The Holy Grail is a medieval legend. Nobody cared in the early church about the actual cup that Christ drank from at the Last Supper. 
Nobody cared about keeping the actual cross that Christ died on because those things were not to be objects of worship. We're to worship God. We're not to worship idols. And to the early church, those things were idols. And the sad thing is today, if you go over to even Europe, forget the Holy Land, and you would go into churches, you would find that every church in Europe has a piece of the cross of Christ. They have enough crosses of Christ, they could build Noah's Ark. There's so many crosses of Christ in Europe. Obviously, not everybody has a piece. Because we're not supposed to worship the cup. And we're not supposed to worship the cross. We're supposed to worship the Christ of the cross. So this Holy Grail thing has just been something that's been around since, again, the Middle Ages. And this is some legend that people have gotten into, and it resurfaces in things like the Da Vinci Code. The other claim that Brown makes, and this is maybe the most incredible, is that Mary Magdalene is God. She is to be worshipped. The fact is that Mary was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. But she is not God, nor did she ever claim to be God. And then the final thing is that I believe that Brown claims that Da Vinci Code is truth. The fact is that Da Vinci Code is a patchwork of unrelated facts, fables, and innuendos to promote secularism, Gnosticism, and feminism. Um, my friends, the affirmations of Christ's deity shout to us from the pages of Scripture. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, I have the power to forgive sins. When the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of God, at his trial, Jesus said unequivocally, I am. And the high priest tore his garments and said, you are a blasphemer. And that's why they wanted to crucify him. Now, we can either believe the claims of Christ and the claims of the Bible, and we can say, you know what, I have come to believe that Jesus Christ is God. Or we can believe the book, The Da Vinci Code, written by Dan Brown, and we can believe that Mary Magdalene is God. The very last part of the book, which will be the very last scene in the movie, the guy is Robert Langdon in the book. That's going to be Tom Hanks' character in the movie. Robert Langdon believes all this. He has come throughout the movie to believe that all these secret codes and everything that, that's pointing to Jesus not being God and Mary being God and a big cover-up and all of this and the Bible being formed by Constantine rather than all the way back here. He's buying into all this, and by the time the movie ends, and by the time the book ends, here's what happens. Robert Langdon then makes his way back to the Louvre Museum in France by himself. He kneels and worships the bones of Mary Magdalene. That's the way the movie, and that's the way the book ends. In fact, the book concludes with these words. I'm quoting now from the Da Vinci Code. The quest for the Holy Grail is the quest to kneel before the bones of Mary Magdalene, the outcast one. He wants us to worship Mary, not Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about, folks. That's it in a little bit of a nutshell. I'm going to start taking questions. Yes? Um, I don't, is it okay if I read the book or watch the movie? I don't like go to open doors or do anything that I shouldn't. But I have said I have no problem with people reading the book or going to the movie as long as they think it's fiction. I mean, it'd just be like going to see Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant and not really believing that the Ark of the Covenant was discovered by Indiana Jones and 
you know, flew up into the sky and all of that. I mean, you know, again, we've got to we, we've got to come to these things and realize, okay, this is this is maybe something to divert me for a couple hours, and 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 it's you know that way. But to to buy into actually with what he's saying and to begin to believe it. I mean, when you compare it to the scriptures and history, it just doesn't even measure up at all. Doesn't even measure up at all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I guess one problem I've always had with with paintings from back then, the Renaissance era, and you know, like that, they're worried about having John look effeminate and, and Peter giving dirty looks and and Jesus sitting in the middle. But when you get right down to it, who knew? And what I'm saying is, who knew what any of them? Actually, looked like right because there, there there were no charcoal drawings, there were no pen and inks, there were no there was nothing really. I guess what I'm saying passed down from 70 A.D. right or earlier that said, "Here's the likeness." Right. So all these guys basically recreated whatever their minds conjured up to begin with. Right. So and being effeminate, masculine, whatever, right, really makes the difference. And saw history through their own exactly. eyes. And see, here, here's the thing that we live in a postmodern world, and one of the problems of a postmodern world is a couple things. First of all, our, our postmodern wor- world doesn't know the Bible. So you could tell them something's in the Bible, and people aren't going to know because they, they're not familiar with the Bible anymore. People don't know the Bible. So they get, they get suckered into stuff because they don't know their Bible today. Secondly, they don't know their history. So you can say, oh, this happened in history, and they don't know whether it did or not, and they don't take time to check it out. The other thing is, today in a postmodern society, everybody's opinion is the same. So in other words, what I mean by that, going back to my Abraham Lincoln illustration, to the postmodern person, somebody alive today writing about Abraham Lincoln and his life would hold the same weight to somebody in our society as somebody who lived with Abraham Lincoln. That's what, so, so, like, so Dan Brown... Un, you know, understand. You know that that's an understandable thing, and that's why today somebody can come along and say, "Well, these guys, hundreds of years later, they knew more about what was really going on than the disciples and those who walked with Christ." And I'm going to hold the weight of what they say on equal footing with the people who actually were there, because to them, there's no differentiation or value as far as opinion goes, and. And all of that goes. That's totally out the window. Everybody's opinion is on equal footing as far as that goes. So, question back over here and then back over there. Yes. What were the Pierre Plantard's papers called? The Pierre Plantard's papers are called Les... I don't know French very well. <laughs> Les Dossiers Secrets. Anybody in French? France? No French? L-E-S-D-O-S-S-I-E-R-S Secrets. I do know that word. But that's what Pierre Plantard's papers are called. Yes? Who were these Gnostics? Was it a, a group? Was it a cult? What was it? Yeah, the, the Gnostics were a group of people, again, who rejected the truth, and who believed that because they rejected the truth, there was other truth out there that had been hidden. And that, that through careful investigation and searching, they were going to find what the real truth is. 
And another reason, that's a good thing to bring up, another reason why this resonates with our society today is because they were sort of the first conspiracy theorists, advocates. They always were seeing a conspiracy in something. Well, today, again, another aspect of our postmodern society is that the culture in which we live loves conspiracy, and they believe that everything is a conspiracy. They, they just think that there's always something behind something. So that's another reason why this book and why these kinds are resonating and making an impact in our world, because people love the conspiracy stuff. And they always are thinking that there's got to be something behind this. This can't be the truth, that Jesus Christ was God and rose from the dead and died for our sins. That, there's got to be something more than that. that it's got, that's just hiding the real truth. The problem with that all is, you could take that ad in, in, you know, all the way out and say, well, everything that you would discover then is going to have something behind it, and you're never going to get to the truth, if that's the truth. If, that, if that's what you're claiming is your philosophy, that there's always something behind something behind something, you're never going to get to anything. And so for them, there really is no way of really knowing the truth, but there's always, they're always that searching for something more down the road. Yeah, Craig. You made a statement uh, that people today, uh, their opinion is that this, uh, you were referring to people that, you were referring to two different sources of information, one from, uh, like for instance, the Gospels, that's 200, 300 years away oh, okay. from the, uh, Christ. Right. That that their opinion is that information is just as good as somebody that's an eyewitness. Right. Why is that? Because people are stupid or don't care about facts or what? I wish I, I had. I, I, I don't understand it when you say that. No, it's not good history. In the modern world, that's the way people think. The only thing I can conclude is that they're ignorant or they don't care about facts. I just think again, yeah. You know, to be a good historian, you you've got to. Part of being a good historian, really getting to know what really happened, is to go back as close as you can and try to find as much information as you can. The problem with that nowadays is a lot of times that's rejected. Just, uh, just, just arbitrarily. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's just, again, it's a lot of times it's the sad society and culture that we live in. Yes. Yeah, I think one of the reasons for that also is the fact that, that now in a postmodern society, we don't like to hear things that make us uncomfortable or unhappy. Right or things that might make us unpopular. We want to hear the real positive stuff, but if we can find somebody to put a real super good spin on it that we happen to really care for a lot, that's a lot easier way to go exactly. than looking at the actual truth. Yeah, it's, it's what I want to believe, not what exactly. really is yeah. true. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just to piggyback off that, having studied like, worldviews and philosophy and stuff like that, postmodern isn't, isn't necessarily like just ignoring something because you don't like it, but it started back when you have Christianity that makes a claim to say, okay, there is truth and truth is absolute. There is truth, there is error. If you deny that, then you then the next step was, well, if, you know, if we don't want to believe what God said, then we'll just say there's no God. And if there's no God, then maybe there's no meaning. And if there's no meaning to life, you know, that leaves people in kind of a lurch. You don't want to say that there's no meaning to your life. So the next step is people say, well, there is meaning, there must be meaning, but meaning is just what we make it to be. Um, so truth becomes, like with postmodern, there is no absolute truth. It's just what you make it to be, because if you really believe that there's no meaning, 
then the only meaning you get out of your life is what you make it to be. So everybody's equal in that kind of a society. Right. Well said. Yeah. Um, what is the connection of Hermes and those 600? Uh, oh. I didn't get the connection with the 20. When you study, yeah, good. When you study ancient documents, you will find that his writings have the most evidence to back up what he talked about than any other ancient document except for the New Testament. And when you see that in contrast, you see how much more evidence and manuscript evidence. That's why when people say, how do you know the, you know the Bible is the Word of God? And how can you... Because we can compare all these manuscripts, and again, it's 99 times... It's not like, you know, people would say, well, how do you know Julius Caesar was one of the Caesars in Rome? Well, we have about five or six documents that we've come up with in history that can point us directly back to Julius. Also, you're going to take five or six documents that Julius Caesar ruled and (coughs) did this and did that and won this war and won this battle and all this, but we've got 22,000. In other words, if all this wasn't true, don't you think that all these different manuscripts would contradict each other and that there would be discrepancies galore? Just the opposite is true. As textual scholars and historians started to uncover all these manuscripts down through history, they actually found that it corroborated 99 and 10% of what back in 100 was already accepted by the church. That's why God God said, I established the truth, I established it, and now I just want you to to embrace it, to believe it, and to defend it. And I'm not going to ask you to defend a moving target. So that I'm not going to bring something new into the fold a couple hundred years later and say, oh, now I want you to go after that. And I want you to... No. The Bible says that our holy faith was given to us once and for all. The canon was closed, meaning the Bible is closed. God's not going to throw any more stuff out there. He just wants us to absorb ourselves in that, know it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, defend it, share it, everything, live by it. And that's it. No moving target. So there's no new stuff coming down the road. The problem is, again, new appeals to the mind today. It's like, our faith is old. It's a couple thousand years old, and I don't really care if it's true or not. It's old, and I want something new. Well, again, what Dan Brown espouses in the Da Vinci Code really isn't new. It goes back to the Gnostic Age. It goes back to Pierre. It's not new. It's just packaged in a different form called the Da Vinci Code. And it sold millions and millions so, of copies. So Hermes was a, a credible historian. Is that yes. What it was? Yes. And what are the other two that you mentioned? Josephus the Jew historian, and then what other one? Well, other other historians that would have written about Jesus in his life that can corroborate all this. Besides, like, you can you can prove most of what we believe from outside the Bible by using historians like Tacitus and Pliny, Roman, and Josephus, Jew, because they wrote. Not as somebody who was embracing Christ and Christianity, but by somebody who wrote all about it and wrote about it, and it, it corroborates their history, corroborates what the Bible says. You know, it's, it's just amazing. Yes. Where you might have even addressed it? Where is it written about the children of Jesus and Elias, alleged children of Jesus and Mary? Or just it's not. This out of the air yeah. Somewhere, it, like I said, he takes the one statement in the Gospel of Philip that supposedly Mary kissed Jesus. And out of that, they, they were married, they had children, the children moved to France and became the line of royalty in France. So that's that priori of Sion? Is that what Jesus' line is? Or? No, no, the priori of Sion would have been this secret society that was formed, according to Brown, 
1099 AD, and when Leonardo came along, he was one of the people that was in that society, and they hid the truth from us until now. Um, so, I know, I've thrown a lot of information. Yes? Is there a so-called lost scribes or missing books that support the uh, lost society? You mean those, like the secret societies? Yeah, secret societies. Uh, you know, you can go back and you can you can in history like uncover what the real priority of science is and things like that. But my point is simply that Brown claims the priority of science is this, and if you study history, you find that it's really this. There, there are, for instance, one of the other societies you've heard about probably is Opus Dei. Uh, it certainly is a society, but there's no proof ever that that society somehow knew the real truth about Jesus Christ and tried to hide it from the world. Again, I think poor, poor historian, poor research in that respect. Yes? Isn't there a clue in uh, Dan Brown's initial statement about what's fact? Isn't there a clue in there about what's fiction? I mean, what he says is fact. If you analyze what he says is fact, he says fact is the names of the societies, the um, artwork, artwork etc. Right. So that implies that everything else could be fiction. And if you look at it, so the names of the society, the Priory of Siam, is is a fact. Um, you know, the, the works are all facts, but all the rest then is just a work of fiction. Right. The problem is, I think, and again, I could be wrong on this, So, I, but I think he really though, does believe what he has put in that book, and I think he promotes it like that. If you study some of the things that he has said on his own website, and you've read some of the statements he made, I am convinced that that man is promoting this as truth, even though he's got to be careful, you know, and because he already was sued over this <laughs> with holy, yes? He does say, though, in the introduction, that it is fiction. Mm-hmm. And as an author, he's, he's crafted a very entertaining Oh, yeah. Story. They're running around all over the globe. Filled with suspense. And look at what it's done. I mean, from a business standpoint, he's really at the jackpot with this. Oh, thing. yeah. And I think he knew in, originally that it was going to be very sensational. And, and the more sensational he could make it, the more profitable it would be for him. Certainly true. And, and one of the other things that gives me a clue, though, to Dan Brown is that, and he, he has said this himself, he grew up in a very, what he called, spiritually confused home. That his parents brought in every belief system, every religion, every faith from all over the world, everything. They were bringing new stuff into their home every week. All these new ideas and new faith. And he said, I grew up so spiritually confused, I didn't know what end was up. And uh, I think part of what you get is that's sometimes the sad uh, ending to that kind of a, an upbringing is you really don't know what, what you believe and why you believe. And in fact, real quick, if you wouldn't mind, turn to First Timothy. I'd like to share this scripture passage with you. I think this is important. Just a couple other passages of scriptures and any other questions, we'll wrap this up tonight. So by the way, the Gospel of Judas, the reason why I didn't spend a lot of time is again... 
That's just a Gnostic gospel that right now is getting a lot of coverage. But again, it's just a Gnostic gospel. First of all, it was actually discovered in 1970. So it's not like this is some new discovery. It's been around for like 45 years, but nobody wanted to spend the money on doing a lot of research on it until National Geographic came along and said, we'll spend millions of dollars on it. And that's why you see National Geographic having all these specials and promoting it, because they put millions of, talking about money, they put millions of dollars into this Gospel of Judas. The problem is the Gospel of Judas isn't telling us anything new than any of these other Gnostic Gospels are. And speaking of Gnostic Gospels and all this, notice what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. As I urged you when I was leaving for Macedonia, stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teaching, nor to occupy themselves with myths and with endless genealogies. Such things promote useless speculations rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. The aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have strayed from these and turned away to empty discussion. Then if you go over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, all the way to the last chapter, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, the last two verses of 1 Timothy. O Timothy, protect what has been entrusted to you. Avoid the profane chatter and absurdities of so-called knowledge. By professing it, the called knowledge, some have strayed from the faith. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you just go over one more book, one other passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes to Timothy, But evil people and charlatans will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. You, Timothy, however, must continue in the things you have learned and are confident about. You see, there's going to be this emphasis on following myths and, well, here's something new. And, and what it is, my friends, is the Bible teaches that Satan is very good at throwing what we call spiritual red herrings up in the air and letting people chase them. What I mean by spiritual red herrings, if any of you back where I'm from, we train hunting dogs, okay? I'm from the mountains of West Virginia and Western Maryland. We train hunting dogs. And when you train a good hunting dog, when you get to the end of hunting those dogs, you literally pass a red herring, a fish, across that dog's nose because what you want that dog to learn to do is you want that dog to focus on what it has been trained to hunt and not to get distracted and off the detour on these other scents. So what the trainer will do at the very end of training, and that's where this whole concept of red herring comes from, is they would literally take a red herring and they would pass it over the dog's nose to try to get the dog down another detour rather than to chase the rabbit or the squirrel or whatever the dog was trained to, to do. The problem is, to take that concept over into the spiritual realm, Satan is doing the very same thing. He's always throwing spiritual red herrings up there in the air and having people go chase them. The Bible says our focus should always be on Jesus Christ and on His Word. But when you get these red herrings up in the air, you just have all these people who are chasing after these spiritual red herrings rather than keeping their focus where it needs to be. And when that happens, guess what? 
Satan has accomplished exactly what he wanted to do. He gets us diverted. He gets us detoured. He gets us distracted over here, chasing after, like Paul said to Timothy, you've got people in your church who are all hung up on these myths and these fables and these endless genealogies and all this stuff that promote endless speculation. He says, get them back to the truth. Get them back to what's really going to matter. But again, the reason we need to say these things to each other is because we're going to live in a world where this is going to continue to increase and where the amount of spiritual red herrings are going to continue to increase and where people are going to continue to be distracted and detoured off what they really need to be focused on and they're going to get caught up in all these new things, supposedly new things that come down the pipe. And the Bible says, beware, beware, beware. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. Yes. Right on. You explained to us on Wednesday morning about Tom Hanks when he took that. Oh, Ron Howard. Ron Howard. Ron yeah, I, I haven't heard anything about Tom Hanks and why he took this role in this movie, but I did hear Ron Howard say that his the only reason he did this movie was because he thought it would be cool as a filmmaker to film a film inside the actual Louvre Museum in France, right in front of the Mona Lisa. And so again, they literally did allow them, to a few of them, under heavy security, to go in in the middle of the night, like at 3 o'clock in the morning, and to actually stand in front of the real Mona Lisa, and to, to film some scenes in this movie right there. And for Ron Howard, he said, for me as a film director, that was, to me, like a sort of a chance of a lifetime. Now again... That's, that's what I've heard. Because some people are also concerned, why would Ron Howard be part of this? Why would Tom Hanks be part of this? I don't know. Her, I think yeah. it's a real shame if uh, Christians start uh, filling the pockets of these people with money by Christians going to see this stuff and buy this stuff. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it just helps Satan's cause, not Christ's cause. True. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yes, Carlos. <clears throat> I, I'd like to comment earlier, and, and I think a lot of a lot of people like this because it gives them a reason to to doubt a real faith and to say, you know what, I don't have to follow that because I don't like what it tells me that I have to do. You know, if you have to be a servant like like the, the sermon today is, they don't they don't like and this allows Satan to cast doubt on the truth and for them to say you know, I don't need to. And it's kind of funny how people really go after conspiracies like that because I was reading in USA Today on Friday, they had something about there's a, a college student that put together a film that is uh, being distributed out to, I guess, whoever requests it about the conspiracy about the 9-11 incident, specifically the, the attack on the Pentagon. And they were saying that it wasn't a plane, it wasn't a hijacked plane, it was actually a missile. And they did that to incite, you know, right. the and even though there's evidence that there was plane there at the crash, right, and all these concrete evidence that was there, there's still people that are going, yeah, you know what, the government's just trying to pull one right. over on them. Yeah. So people will believe what they want to believe. Right. And I, I will, I will say this too, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. Um, part of this too, and I've talked to these people, that's why I'm saying this. Part of this is giving. There's a lot of disgruntled Catholics out there in our society who are upset at the church, their, their church, and this book is very anti-Catholic church, and so it's giving them a reason for why they, you know, they, they have a, it's almost like a, they're justified in, in, 
you know, turning their back on the church. But the sad thing is, they're not only turning their back, they're turning their back on God, in a sense, too. They're allowing that to not just be, oh, I'm turning my back on this. They're saying, I don't want anything to do with God anymore. And that's where the shame of it all is. Let me ask, was this helpful at all tonight? Okay, all right. Well, no, I just, I want to make sure that what, you know, I don't want this to be, I mean, I wasted an hour and ten minutes to come in here and hear this. I'm glad that this was helpful to some of you. Get the word out. I'm going to be sharing some more of this in the mine on the 23rd of May, uh, because again, the movie comes out on the 19th. It's only going to create more buzz when the movie comes out. So I'll be doing a little bit more on the mine on the 23rd of May, which will be the very last time we meet this this year for the mine until the fall. Try to get excited, will you? I'll try. Try to, you know, stir up some. I'm sorry. This just. Let's pray, and I'll let you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, and thank you for your, for the truth. And Father, I thank you that we have a truth that we can base our life on, and that we can stand on, that we can base our eternity on. That, that, that Father, we, we don't have to like wonder if, if this is true, if this is real. Father, there, you have given us not just the truth, you've, you've given us all these as Luke says, many infallible proofs, and you've given us historical facts, and Father, we we can base our faith even on the historical facts, like the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Father, there's just so much in our faith that just proves, Lord, you and your word over and over again, and help us, Lord, to embrace that and to stand upon it and to not allow anything to come down the road, Father, that may that may shake us and, and begin to, Lord, maybe allow us to begin to question the reality of what we believe in. And Father, certainly for those out there in this world today who are still searching for what they really believe in, Father, help us to maybe use these opportunities we may get in the next couple of weeks to share the facts and the truth with these folks. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for being here tonight. Thank you, thank you.